Welcome to another episode of Undisciplined, a collaborative podcast between the African and African American Studies program at the University of Arkansas and KUAF. The podcast provides a holistic understanding of complex issues that affect our interconnected world. Taking the interdisciplinary approach of African and African American Studies to the classroom, into the community, onto the airwaves, and beyond. I am your host, Dr. Karee Banton, and for this fifth season, I have a new co-host, Nenevi Tony. Now let's get into it. Today we have very special guests in our class in our Introduction to African and African American Studies course. Uh, today we are scheduled to be discussing reparations. And I'm extremely delighted to not only be able to have this conversation to you, but to have my friends and uh, collaborators uh, from KUAF, NPR, where the Undisciplined podcast, which I hope you guys been subscribing to, I'll give extra credit. <laughs> I have no shame where that is concerned. Uh, subscribe also to the R Word. <laughs> I, I gave you all um, an episode to listen to and some questions to formulate. But I'm very thrilled and happy to have my two good friends here with me in class today to kind of help us parse through this discussion, right, um, on reparations. Uh, I've long collaborated with these two, and I'm so happy that, you know, in this course we have opportunities to not only do our intellectual, theoretical stuff here, but to encounter people who are actually doing the work in the community. Um, you're taking uh, the, the, the course that is uh, the core course for African and African American studies, and as a program, the community is one of the core elements of that study. So we're always happy to encounter people doing real life work in the community. And so I'm very happy today to um, introduce to these two guests. First, we have uh, Mr. Lowell Taylor. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here with you all. <laughs> right. So um, Lowell Taylor and I um, started out, I think, together when we were doing the Washington County Remembrance Project. But um, since then, he's also been involved with uh, the Witness Foundation, which um, at its core is trying to ensure that justice um, is kind of delivered, um, you know, to or, or through uh, Christian leaders. Right. And so they are tr trying um, in terms of involvement with Christian leaders to kind of uh, raise funds among Christian leaders to kind of give back reparations. And so he has been doing that. Um, he has been involved um, in this kind of a work with Northwest Arkansas in particularly um, through reparations now NWA. Uh, Lowell and his wife, Rebecca, um, committed to raising $100,000, which they did through the Witness Foundation, and they were able to support two organizations. Um, the Monique Jones um, ran Sasqu uh, Squire Jehagen um, Community Outreach Center that gives out food uh, to, uh, they run a food bank, right, and uh, to, uh, to, to two women involved in mental health counseling 
that they can offer mental health counseling at a discounted rate, especially to black and minoritized uh, folks. And so he is somebody who is actually involved in doing this work, and that's why we have him today. He's also the, the co-host of the podcast, The R Word, which is what you had one of those episodes to listen to. And then you also have uh, Dustin McGowan. Um, Dustin has been a preacher for a number of years, so he's actually a part of that um, Christian pastor um, congregation. And he is um, currently at, well, say hello, just Dustin, Genesis as well. Church. Genesis Church. Say hello as well. Oh, sorry. Hello. <laughs> hello. Um, and so he is also a collaborator on the R Word po podcast, um, both him and Lowell. Um, is a collaborator, and we are recording for those two podcasts today, The R Word and On Discipline. So again, remember to subscribe. <laughs> so we're going to go through um, this uh, class session. I'm going to kind of give an overview of uh, reparations, and then Lowell and Dustin will come in, and then those uh, questions that you wrote down after listening to The R Word, we're going to take some um, questions from you okay how about that you guys ready oh you guys can you know feel free to to speak up all right uh, so reparations uh, reparations um, as we know has been a hot button topic for the last number of years right um, what have you guys heard about reparations um, you know, uh, in the last recent years. What have you heard? Go ahead, Mark. Okay, so the idea of receiving 40 acres and a mule. Okay, all right, okay. So could you repeat that, Mr. Stuckett? I know that um, the idea of reparations comes from former enslaved individuals receiving 40 acres and a mule as promised by um, the government following the freemen of enslaved persons in the United States. All right, wonderful. Who else? What have you heard about reparations? That's particular to African Americans. What else have you heard about it? Or do you know about it? Anyone? I learned something that surprised me when I was auditing a class. Um, it turns out that after the Emancipation Proclamation, when slaves were supposedly freed, not only did they, the slaves, not get reparations, the slave owners <laughs> got reparations for losing their quote-unquote property. Absolutely. And, I mean, you all in this class should know us about some cases where the owners were compensated for losing their labor. Do we know which case we're talking about? Zaria? Who had to pay back um, debt to a certain European country? 80, okay. That's right, that's right. You guys, go ahead, yell it out. So I wanna you know, start off by talking about you know, different cases of reparations that we've probably heard about, right? Um, Hillary Beckles, um, the Vice Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, has written one of the premier books on reparations from a Caribbean perspective. Uh, Hillary Beckles wrote the book, Britain's Black Debt, Reparations for Caribbean Slavery and Native Genocide, right? And so um, 
in this book, he makes the case as to why Caribbean or British Caribbean former colonies are owed reparations, right? And it refers to Miss um, Gwen's uh, 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 point that she just made about in 1833 when enslaved people in the British Caribbean were freed, right? That uh, the British raised 17 billion in compensation, modern day money. But that money was not paid to enslaved people, right? It was given to Britain's slave owners for their loss of human property, okay? And so it was the largest state-sponsored um, payout in British history before the banking crisis of 2008. And the taxpayers' money at that time went straight into the pockets of people who had already profited from, of course, what was a cruel and inhumane business um, in the transatlantic um, slave trade. So the, 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 the British government paid out 20 million to compensate some 300, sorry, 3,000 families that owed that owned slaves, uh, paid them for their loss of property um, in 1833. And actually, that money that was raised through loans, it was just paid off by the British Treasury around 2015 or 2016. That's when they became aware that they had been paying all of this money. So can you imagine Caribbean people from Jamaica or Barbados or Antigua or Grenada or who were enslaved in the Caribbean, who might have migrated to Britain during the Windrush generation and subsequently, after World War II, you know that Britain had to do a lot of rebuilding of their economy and lots of Caribbean people went there, that they had to be helping to pay back this money <laughs> that the government took out to compensate slave owners. Does that make sense, right? So this idea of reparations, um, if you look, you guys watch Downton Abbey all the time. People, if you imagine folks like this uh, who owes, um, who were paid money and were compensated, um, people like um, you know uh, people who won, uh, owned the Herewood um, Castle and and all of those uh, descendants um, uh, who who uh, were part of the slave trade um, were paid back money. Okay. Um, let's go to uh, another case of, of, of compensation, right? Um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, Tanahasi Coates um, wrote a big article when he was editor of The Atlantic, and he was making the case for reparations from an African-American perspective. And we see this big tagline here on The Atlantic where African-Americans uh, suffered through 250 years of slavery 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, and 35 years of state-sanctioned redlining. And he says that until we reckon with the compounding moral debt of our ancestors, America will never be whole. Until we reckon with the compounding moral debts of our ancestors, America will never be whole. And that is the case that he puts forward for reparations. Right? That this should be a national reckoning that would lead to some kind of a spiritual renewal. Right? Um, if we look at the current statistics in terms of where black families fall in terms of income, um, that they're significantly less wealthy than white families. Right? Studies conducted by the Pew Research Center that estimate that white households are worth 20 times as much as black households. 
and that whereas only 15% of whites have zero or negative wealth, more than a third of black people do, right? So the, the, the black family in America is working without a safety net. And so, um, you know, when we look, I saw this meme on Twitter, because, you know, of course, Twitter is going to tweet. And so when people sometimes suggest to black people when they do make that case for reparations, so get over it. Why can't we move on? Like, why can't you? That was so long ago, right? We have to look at the specificities of what it is that is so long ago that people tend to poo-poo the idea of reparations because it's like once it's so long ago, there is no way that this can be, um, you know, uh, uh, the work of finding out who is owed reparations, that it can be calculated, all of that would be in obscurity um, by the fact that it is so long ago. So again, if we look at the number of when slavery was, right, and when it ended in the United States, um, and then when segregation was, right, and then even when black people got the right to vote, when they could attend um, certain institution um, um, in the, in, in, uh, the United States, then we could see the kinds of um, case that was um, made. There has been several efforts um, to, to kind of introduce reparations. There was a reparations bill that was introduced in Massachusetts by State um, Senator William Owens and um, Representative John Conyers uh, from Detroit had issued for a federal study um, of uh, slavery discrimination and appropriate remedies. And so that has been a bill that has been making its way while Conyers was um, alive and in Congress through the House Judiciary C Committee, and he has reintroduced it a number of years, okay? We have seen other cases where um, different groups have been um, given reparations. Uh, we've seen the cases where um, different um, Native American tribes um, have been, uh, you know, kind of um, given reparations. We've seen the case where um, slave owners in the United States, where Lincoln signed a bill in 1862 for up to $300 for every enslaved person freed, right? And there was a big debate in um, Congress at the time about whether abolition should take place with reparations, whether abolition should be immediate and without reparations, or whether it should be reparation, uh, with reparations. So we see in 1862 that Lincoln signed a bill emancipating enslaved people in Washington, and this brought an end to that long struggle and to ease the slave owner's pain, the District of Columbia Emancipation Act um, pay those loyal to the union up to $300 for every enslaved person um, that was freed, okay? We know that um, in 1951, that African Americans, a group um, stating that we charge genocide, um, issued this historic petition to the United Nations for a relief from the crime of the United States governments against Negro people. This is in 1951, right? And so they wrote a paper called We Charge Genocide, accusing the United States of genocide based on the, U the United Nations Genocide Convention, right? And this was written by the CRC, the Civil Rights Congress, presented to the United Nations during a Paris meeting in 51. And so um, obviously by then the United Nations had a convention on the prevention and punishment of genocide 
um, which define genocide as any acts committed with the intent to destroy a group in part or in whole, and they use this to build that case um, and to create the document based on the lynchings in the United States, legal discrimination, disenfranchisement of black people in the South, incidents of police brutality that date to the present, systematic inequalities in health, as we know, that exists up to date, and general quality of life for um, African Americans. And their central argument was that the United States government is both complicit with and responsible for a genocidal situation based on the UN's own definition of genocide. Okay? So, of course, that document received a lot of media attention at that time because we know during that period the United States was caught up in the Cold War politics. And so um, they got support from a number of different um, uh, people. Other groups that um, who have been paid uh, uh, reparations, okay? Um, we're talking about the Axis powers paid war reparations after both wars, right? Um, Germany compensated victims of the Holocaust, seven billion in 2014. Um, West Germany agreed to give then the young state of Israel um, seven billion. South Africa um, compensated victims of apartheid after a truth and reconciliation um, meeting. The British government, uh, we've talked about settler colonialism in this class, especially in Africa. They agreed to pay out 20 million in reparations to a group of more than 5,000 survivors of the Mau Mau re rebellion. They had uh, the Mau Mau who had rose up in rebellion against British colonialism in Kenya, right, were actually put in concentration camps and tortured in similar style uh, to what the, the Germans uh, did to, to the Jews. And so they actually hired a lawyer and sued the British for reparations, and they actually were paid out. And it is on those similar grounds that Hillary Beckles and this Caribbean um, Committee for Reparations is also filing for Caribbean reparations from, um, from Britain as well. I must also mention that before even the Germans practiced uh, their uh, genocidal acts on the Jews, that they did it. First of all, we've discussed how they sent someone here to the University of Arkansas Law School to study how to discriminate based on what the South was doing here to African Americans and Native people, how they could exclude the kind of laws that they could write that was then taken up. Hitler was like, hey, you do it, we could do it better. Okay, um, but th the Germans were already doing this in places like Namibia in Africa. They were already practicing um, genocidal acts um, against the Nama and the Herero tribes. And they actually filed for reparations against the Germans in actually American courts. They filed for reparations and they have been um, trying to make that case uh, for uh, reparations. I'm going to come back to a video, a video about that. Okay, so um, we know that uh, Ronald Reagan also signed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 that established reparations for victims of the Japanese internment and signed that into law. And so um, that precedence is there for giving 
uh, reparations, um, but um, has yet to be taken up. We know in recent times, California has done a study and has moved um, to, to think seriously about reparations for African Americans. A lot of people are trying to say they're going to move to California and get some of that rep money, you know. <laughs> but that is also um, uh, in the working. Randall Robinson wrote a book called The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks, right? That was actually at uh, the center of uh, the argument for reparations in the United States um, uh, for a very long time. Uh, Randall recently passed away. So there is a long history of reparations being paid to different parties. There is precedent um, for all of these um, kinds of um, um, cases from the Japanese to the Jews to Native Americans, you know, um, you know, to African-Americans filing uh, this petition in the, the UN in, in 1951, right? So this is a timely debate, and I'm happy that we have uh, people uh, here today that, you know, can really tell you what they are doing in their own actions for, th for, this, for this cause. So I'm going to pass the mic now to uh, Lowell and to Dustin. Thank you, Dr. Banton. Um, thank you all for having us here today. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, my name is Dr. Benton mentioned is Lowell Taylor. Uh, I was born and raised in Little Rock, came up here for college and stayed. I was at the university from seven to 11. Um, I believe in Dr. Banton in African and African American studies um, in learning black history. Um, it's been said that uh, there can be no community without common memory. Um, and I think one of the problems we have in our state and in our country is that we don't have a common memory, um, that we've not told the truth about our past and that's causing problems in the present. Um, so I'm really, really honored to be here with you all today. Um, so Dr. Banton has made uh, a brief, but I think persuasive case for reparations. She alluded to Ta-Nehisi Coates and his The Case for Reparations. And um, on our podcast, The R Word, Dustin and I um, spend some time answering the question whether we should practice reparations, whether we should. Um, but today, uh, what I want to talk about is how we could practice reparations, um, more directly how I believe we can practice reparations here in Northwest Arkansas now. Um, like you all, I'm a student, um, online, part-time. Uh, I'm a seminary student, and I've written a paper uh, a brief paper outlining or introducing rather the Zacchaeus Foundation, uh, a new nonprofit that we're starting to uh, help us practice reparations. Um, so what I want to do today, um, in about 10 minutes, I'll be brief, uh, is, is share that paper with you all, um, introducing the Zacchaeus Foundation, and then Dustin's going to speak as well. Um, so. Uh, the Zacchaeus Foundation is a nonprofit organization named for Zacchaeus, who returned what he had stolen. You all may know or remember Zacchaeus from the Bible. There's a story about him in Luke chapter 19. Uh, Zacchaeus returned what he had stolen. Uh, in a book called Reparations, Quan and Thompson write that reparations returns stolen truth, wealth, and power. That's their definition of the term. Reparations returns stolen truth, wealth, and power. So we're working for racial healing and reparations in Northwest Arkansas by returning stolen truth, by educating white people and churches about racial injustice, uh, 
wealth by investing in black nonprofits and power by empowering black people to decide who receives funds, okay? So here, uh, I wanna share with you all how we're organized, number one, how we educate, number two, uh, and how we invest, number three, with case studies that inform our work. And then lastly, uh, I'll invite white people in churches to work with us, as that's the, the primary audience for this paper, um, the people um, who are trying to, to persuade to practice reparations are primarily white people and churches in our community, okay? So how are we organized? Like other nonprofits, we have board members, donors, and clients. Board members are white people who educate white people and churches about racial injustice and black people who are empowered to decide who receives funds. Donors are white people and churches who invest in black nonprofits. And clients are black nonprofits who receive funds. Uh, our 2024 board members are Betty Wilton, your own Dr. Karee Banton, Chris Seawood, Dustin McGowan, myself, Lynette Washington, Sharon Killian, Suzanne Bridges, and Dr. Trisha Posey. So how we're organized is informed by our first case study, uh, which I've called How White Churches Responded to Racism. So in 2020, in 2020, white churches in Northwest Arkansas responded to racism in three ways that I observed. Uh, the first was by joining the Christian community's response to racism. The second was by joining NWA United, and the third by joining Reparations Now NWA, which Dr. Banton alluded to. So the Christian community's response to racism was a live discussion between white and black pastors, which required white churches to admit that racism is a problem. Pastors of four white churches in Northwest Arkansas joined, okay? NWA United was a statement of unity and commitments agreed to by white and black churches, which required white churches to commit to do racial justice. Of the four white churches who joined the Christian community's response to racism, two joined NWA United and two did not. Third and finally, Reparations Now NWA was an invitation to fund black Christian nonprofit leaders in Northwest Arkansas with the Witness Foundation, which required white churches to submit to accountability uh, for their commitments. And of the eight white churches who joined either the Christian community's response to racism or NWA United, two joined Reparations Now NWA and six did not. So in summary, many white churches admitted that racism is a problem, fewer committed to do racial justice, and fewer submitted to accountability for commitments. So at the Zacchaeus Foundation, we help white people and churches submit to accountability for commitments by investing in black nonprofits, okay? So that's number one, how we're organized in our first case study. Uh, second, how we educate. In The Color of Compromise, uh, Jamar Tisby introduces the arc of racial justice. He says that to do racial justice, we need to grow in awareness of racial injustice, multiracial relationships, and commitment to racial justice. So we help white people and churches grow in awareness of racial injustice and commitment to racial justice 
believing that if white people want healthy multiracial relationships, then we need to grow in awareness and commitment first. In the end of White Christian America, Jones writes, quote, given our still present past, white Christians are more likely to find reconciliation as a result of a journey rather than a destination that can be reached directly. So at the Zacchaeus Foundation, we help white people and churches grow in awareness of racial injustice by hosting the R Word podcast and events. How we're educated is informed by our second case study, which is the R Word podcast and events. So I started the R Word podcast with help from friends at KUAF uh, and events with help from friends at the Fayetteville Public Library to talk primarily to white Christians about reparations and the church. In 2022, uh, I started the podcast and we interviewed Dr. Jamar Tisby, Dr. Gregory Thompson, and black people about how white churches have responded to racism. In 2023, we interviewed people who have helped me on my journey toward racial justice. In 2024, we will interview board members who will share their journeys towards racial justice. In 2022, we also started the R Word events, um, and Dr. Tisby spoke about his book, How to Fight Racism at the Library. In 2023, uh, Dr. Gregory Thompson spoke about his book, Reparations. We hosted a book reading and discussion of reparations and a film viewing and discussion of the big payback. In 2024, in April, so just a few months from now, Dr. Christina Edmondson will speak about her book, Faithful Anti-Racism, and we will host a book reading and discussion of that book. So third, how we invest. We help white people and churches grow in commitment to racial justice by investing in black nonprofits. We will open a fund with the Arkansas Community Foundation in 2024, which we will grow to an endowed fund. We estimate that we will raise $100,000 from white people and churches in 2025, and that giving will increase by 10% annually for 10 years. So if we're correct, then we'll raise about $1.6 million from white people and churches, earn about $300,000 in interest, and give $500,000 to black nonprofits by 2034, at which time we will have an endowment of about $1.3 million, which will enable us to give $50,000 to black nonprofits annually, perpetually, without raising more money. So how we invest is informed by our third and final case study, uh, which is the Witness Foundation. In 2019, Dr. Jamar Tisby started the Witness Foundation to train and fund black Christian nonprofit leaders. In 2020, as Dr. Banton mentioned, uh, I raised $100,000 from white people and churches for the Witness Foundation, who trained and funded two black Christian nonprofit leaders in Northwest Arkansas, Joy McGowan and Monique Jones, who received $50,000 each. In 2022, the Witness Foundation communicated that they cannot train and fund more black Christian nonprofit leaders here in Northwest Arkansas, so we're starting the Zacchaeus Foundation now, like the Witness Foundation, we will fund black nonprofit leaders who will receive $50,000 each. Unlike the Witness Foundation, we will neither train black nonprofit leaders nor limit funding to black Christian 
nonprofit leaders. We'll fund both black Christian and black other than Christian nonprofit leaders. So in conclusion, my invitation uh, to work with us, uh, few white people in churches in Northwest Arkansas will work with the Zacchaeus Foundation because few white Americans support reparations now. And from here to equality, Darity and Mullen write that less than one in 10 white Americans supported reparations in the year 2000. And that about three in 10 white Americans support reparations now. So on one hand, this means that about seven in 10 white Americans oppose reparations now. But on the other hand, this means that support for reparations among white Americans has increased by seven times in the last 20 years. So now I believe that we need a few white people in churches here in Northwest Arkansas to be what I call first jumpers. So when I was at the lake with my children, they feared jumping into the water. I jumped first and they jumped second because they had an example to follow. If a few white people in churches will jump into reparations now, then more may jump into reparations later because they have an example to follow. Uh, finally, uh, I gave you all a penny and a dime. Y'all still have those? Yeah? Uh, you spent it already? No. <laughs> so um, I've learned that uh, s some white people are asking whether to practice reparations and others are asking how. So we're inviting white people who are asking whether to educate themselves by listening to the podcast and attending the events. Um, but there are white people in churches who are asking how, and we're inviting them to invest in black nonprofits with us. So uh, why the dime and the penny? Uh, the black-white wealth gap means that the average black household has about 10% of the wealth of the average white household, a dime to every dollar. Said differently, the average white household has 10 times the wealth of the average black household, a dollar to every dime. So the, the black-white wealth gap was opened by theft, and we must close it by returning what we have stolen. So we're inviting white people and churches to invest 1% of their annual income, a penny to every dollar, in black nonprofits with us. And this, I, I really believe, um, is the least that we can do. Thank you all. Stay tuned for more on discipline after this commercial break. I'm Denisha Simpson. And I'm Joy McGowan. And, and we, we are, are the, the co-host to, to the Resilient Black Women podcast. Our podcast is all about demystifying mental health for black women, women of color, and women everywhere. You can learn more about our work with our nonprofit and our podcast by visiting resilientblackwomen.org. You can also listen to our podcast at KUAF.com or subscribe to our podcast on any streaming platform. Welcome back. Dustin. Thank you, Lil. Thank you, Lowell. Uh, my name, as, as you've heard already, is Dustin McGowan. Uh, I am uh, a pastor at Genesis Church um, in South Fayetteville. I've uh, been in ministry since I was 16, uh, surprisingly. That's kind of unique, but if you grew up in a black church, you know that that's not strange. Um, 
Uh, I'm from originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, lived in Chicago for 10 years before moving here in 2017. Yes, it was a pretty big culture shock moving from Chicago uh, to Northwest Arkansas, but uh, uh, we've settled in. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I am uh, a husband of uh, my wife, Joy McGowan. Uh, she was actually one of the Witness Fellows. Uh, she runs a nonprofit called Resilient Black Woman Women and also has a podcast by the same name that is uh, much more popular than our podcast. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so uh, go and take a listen to that um, if you uh, are interested in uh, the context around mental health, uh, particularly for uh, uh, black women, women of color, um, and women overall, if you would ask her, and so she would speak about it. Uh, but Lowell really gave you the nuts and bolts of what uh, the Zacchaeus Fund is, Reparations Now NWA, and what we aim to be able to accomplish, and I'm really thankful for Lowell and the work that he's put in. You don't know Lowell, he's really real quiet and laid back, but Lowell is a, is a force of nature, um, of a person, and so he's a go-getter, he goes and gets things done, and uh, you need white people like that in this work, um, because it is a work that needs to be um, pushed forward by white people in particular. Uh, but the thing that I really wanna talk about um, I'm more of a vision caster of a person. Surprise, surprise, I'm a pastor. Um, but uh, I want to talk about the heart and the vision uh, of uh, what kind of picture can be painted and what are we really trying to live into. Uh, what we've really talked about uh, in what our podcast is and what we are pursuing here is, is really this kind of term of ecclesiastical reparations. Uh, which is a, comes from a theological word, uh, ecclesiology, which basically means the church or the study of the church. Um, and we, we really have leaned in there um, because there is a great deal of culpability, uh, of, of complicity in the church for racism, the, the reality of white supremacy, um, has historically in many ways been undergirded by uh, the white church. And in Christianity in particular, uh, from ideals of justice and the ideals of this uh, concept of jubilee that exists in the scripture, gives a pretty strong framework for what reparation should be. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, um, is, you know, as Christians have the reputation of doing, is kind of uh, promoting the things in Scripture that uh, they agree with and silencing and not talking about the things in Scripture that they do not agree with. Uh, the concept of justice and particularly Jubilee is one of those ideas that are, that it's prominent, especially in the Old Testament, but never gets talked about. And so in Leviticus 25, another book that people don't read, <laughs> uh, it talks about the year of Jubilee, which is this idea that every 50th year, that um, on the Day of Atonement, the day that the people recognize uh, the forgiveness of sins um, that were placed on the scapegoat and all these kinds of things, that it was also a year, every 50th year was a year of Jubilee. Um, in, the, in the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled. 
So for some reason, um, uh, you had land and you had a bad crop or you weren't a very good farmer or you mismanaged for some reason. Somebody got sick. You, for some reason, you had to sell your land um, and uh, you went into debt that that should not be a generationally perpetual sentence of poverty. Also, uh, if you, for some reason, had to hire yourself out for some of the same reasons as an indentured servant um, to be able to work to make sustenance for yourself and your family, it would mean that you were not to be perpetually in that position. So every 50th year, all debts were canceled and any land was returned to the original owner. And so everyone in Israel had land allotments. And so at the, in every 50th year, the entire economic system was reset. And so anyone who got into a position to where they might have been in poverty, where they might have been living in a basic type of sustenance existence, um, had this reality that the economic system that was created meant that you were not in perpetual poverty and that it was not profits over people and that in the vision was that we would promote this idea of wholeness that everyone should be as they were intended to be so that they could thrive so that they could flourish right uh, one of the, the problems in the scriptures is that uh, that the year of Jubilee was never honored. Never honored. And so this system that promotes flourishing was never lived into because like any system that exists, right, it requires people to live into those systems. And the problem with people is that people be peopling. <laughs> and that we have the tendency to choose ourselves over other people. Um, Malcolm X, who's one of my favorite historical figures, um, uh, uniquely when you know we tend to study black history, we kind of malign uh, Malcolm X and uh, Black Panther leaders and all these kinds of things. But Malcolm X makes this statement about uh, what healing is. And he says, if you, you stick a knife in my back and you pull it out, uh, and then nine inches, you pull it out too. That is not progress. He says, but if you take the knife all the way out, that's not progress either, but that's a beginning, that's a start. That's where healing can begin. And most of our conversations around racial justice focus on the moving the knife two inches or just pulling the knife out but not the promotion of actual healing. How do we tend to the wound? How, could, how do we tend to the fence? How do we tend to what was taken? And what we want to be able to accomplish is the reality is that when we live into uh, white supremacist systems, systems that dehumanize uh, people and prop others up, as having more dignity and worth. Uh, one of the things that we, we don't know that we do is that we, um, um, we violate ourselves in the process. 
is this idea that I like to talk about called, you know, double dehumanization. Is that you cannot violate another person's dignity and worth without violating your own. Uh, is what we see when you uh, look at old pictures of lynchings. And they're very stark pictures because you'll see someone being lynched and there's this crowd around um, or being burned or, or something like that. And you look, if you zoom in on the picture, you'll see these are well-dressed people. These aren't just, you know, a hillbilly from the mountains who came out to, to kill a black person. But these are normally people whom are professional class, who've traveled from far away to witness this spectacle. And if you look at their faces, you see them smiling, happy, having a great time, right? And then as uh, was custom, oftentimes they would take pieces of the body of the person who was lynched and as a souvenir of the experience. No one can do something like that without traumatizing themselves. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to say, I said that because I want to say this, is that um, there's, there's really two lanes of the work of racial justice. Um, one of them is, is synergism, right? There's this mutual pursuit of uh, healing. And that's normally where the conversation is dominated. How can we have forgiveness? How can we get in, have unity? How can we move back to one another in relationship? Ideas like reconciliation. And that's normally where the conversation freezes. I've been doing this work for an incredibly long time. <laughs> in my, uh, as a part of my own not that long life. I've been doing it for a long time. And I've seen time and time again the conversation deconstruct when you try to move out of the synergistic healing of relationship conversation and move into what I would call um, the monergistic um, part of the conversation to where, as Lowe described, where we talk about reparations of, and that is the restoring of truth, power, and resources from a group that has, um, taken and though a group that has had it taken from them. When we get to the conversation that is more monogistic in nature, meaning that one group has to pay restitution, has to promote wholeness. If we talk about that jubilaic system, someone was all, well, if it was lived into, would be on the short end of the stick of that, right? <laughs> you gained something and you have to give that thing away, right? There's a reason why it was never lived into because people want what they want no matter whom it harms or who it affects. Um, but the beauty of, in my opinion, of living into that, and this is the same thing that Ta-Nehisi Coates said in his article, that real flourishing is only possible when we pursue restitution, when we make things right, when we uh, account for the harm that has been done, no one in their right mind can go and do harm to a person. Um, you've, you've robbed them, you've abused them, you've done something to them, and then they show up at their house for Thanksgiving <laughs> and expect that 
everything that had been done would be ignored. You would be looked at like you're what you are, completely out of your mind. But that is what we've, in many ways, have attempted to do um, in the American context, is that we've refused to acknowledge and to um, pursue restitution and repair for the harm that has been done, skipped all the steps that actually make real thriving relationship possible, and expect us to be able to somehow live in a reality where there is unity and thriving and flourishing against uh, with, with groups who have historically um, been enemies. Uh, that's not possible. And so the only way to actually move towards that is, in my opinion, is to not to end with reparations, but to begin with it. Conversation has to start with repair, right? If, if you've stolen something from me, you can't come over my house and say, hey, let's hang out. Um, the first thing I'm asking is, where's my stuff? My dad used to be, was a was a major bootlegger of movies when I was growing up. We had hundreds of VHS, H -test, VHS tapes in my house. You might not know what that is. <laughs> you know, it's like a DVD, it's like an MP4, but you know, really big and rectangular, and you put it in the machine. Um, and we had hundreds of them in our house, and my dad would loan them out to people. And he would write a name on the person who, of the person who borrowed the tape. And my dad, we always had family get-togethers and cookouts. Um, but if anyone came over who owed my dad a tape, there was no other conversation. <laughs> but where is my stuff? I'm going to need you to bring it to me expeditiously. He didn't use that word. But that is what he intended. And it is the same in any relationship that we cannot pursue thriving unless we deal with what was taken, what is old, right? Unless I am made whole, unless we are made whole, how can we live together in any way that is authentic, that is harmonious, that is real if we don't take care of that? So that's what I wanted to say. Thank you so much, Dustin. Thank you, Lowell. So we actually have some time now to pull out those uh, questions that you guys wrote down that uh, uh, for this for this session, uh, if you could pull these out and we kind of just go around and get some of those from you. Okay. Yes. Go ahead, Mr. Stuckett. I think it was really cool what y'all just said about and connecting churches to reparations. I think that's a um, pretty good idea. But I wanted to ask, when you're in the church, do you feel as the church convinces people to not look at slash silence race and racial discrimination with the idea that we must treat everyone as if they were that neighbor? But what happens when your neighbor doesn't look like you? What happens when your neighbor is poor and you used to have neighbors that are rich. What happens when your neighbor is different from what you're expected? And how does this, like, the idea that it doesn't fit your idea of having a neighbor play into the idea of racism and racial segregation? 
Thank you, Mr. Stuckett. I, I appreciate that question. If, if I've understood it correctly, you're saying, hey, we know that the Bible says we're supposed to love people. We're supposed to treat people the way we want to be treated. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. But why, why are we not doing that? Uh, why is it difficult to do that across difference? Is that the, the sentiment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question and one that we've um, addressed on the podcast in part. Um, the reality is that we still live in a, a de facto segregated country, uh, not de jure, not by law, but de facto, um, and that white Christians uh, are more segregated than white other than Christian people. And so we have a problem of proximity. Um, people who look like me are not proximate to people who look like you. White people are not proximate to black people. Um, and, 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 and so I think that, um, that that is a problem. Um, and so um, I, I think in terms of how do we, how do we solve for that, we, we've suggested that white people need to grow in awareness of racial injustice and commitment to racial justice before we're ready for healthy, healthy multiracial relationships. And I think there's some nuance there. Like Dustin and, and, and Dr. Banton have been really important in my life and other black people to help me grow. Um, but I'm not a good friend to them if I'm not committed to grow in awareness and commitment. Um, I'm not a good friend to them if I'm not committed to change the systems um, that that hurt them more than they hurt me, uh, such as mass incarceration and, and other systems. If I, um, in Dr. King's words, uh, bless a status quo that I should blast. Um, so I think that's how I try to answer that that really good and important question. Thank you. Can I just say too that James Baldwin it says the most segregated hour is high noon on Sunday. You know, <laughs> some of us go to a black church, some of us go to a white church. So again, that distance in the community. Yeah, uh, I would give the, the simple answer of people to actually live into what they claim to believe. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a parable in the New Testament that Jesus gives called the Good, called the Good Samaritan, and we've, you've probably heard of it. Um, but it includes, you know, four parties, a party of a man who's been beaten, left on the side of the road for dead, um, a Levi and um, a priest who are a part of the same group as the man who's left on the side of the road, passed the man by. Um, then comes a Samaritan, a man whom Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They were, you know, communicated enemies of one another, did not engage, is the one who stops right, and tends to the man on the side of the road um, and uh, cares for his wounds, takes him to an inn that he might be cared for, tells the innkeeper, I'm going to uh, uh, do everything that he needs, and when I return, I will pay for all of his expenses. Right? He, 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 he poses that story as a, 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 to the question of a person who the scripture says was trying to justify himself um, and asks, who is my neighbor? Right? And Jesus tells that story as a response. Right. The, the presupposition of the story is not uh, who my neighbor is, but to whom am I being a neighbor? Right. The entire point is that of what is being pushed is that everyone is your neighbor. You should live 
sacrificially in relationships with people. Um, and I said this in a podcast actually a couple episodes ago. He said that, you know, claiming to be a Christian is one of the things uh, that we've been able to say in the West uh, that you can claim to be um, without uh, providing no evidence to prove that you actually believe that thing and people accept it as being true. Right? You can claim to be a follower of Jesus, not believe or live into any of the things that Jesus says, and people are like, oh, yeah, that guy's a Christian. It's absurd. And so we have churches full of people, in my opinion, who don't believe, who don't follow Jesus, but claim to follow Jesus merely because of his social and political um, benefits that has existed in America. And so I think it's a reckoning that is necessary on, on part of that um, for people to be called out for actually not living into what they, what they profess. So I guess my main question is what sparked your um, interest in like the racial issues, especially in Arkansas of all places, considering uh, well, one is a white man and one is a black man from up north. And if you've grown up in Arkansas, especially as a black person, you know that the communities here can be very stubborn, whether white or black, neither one wants to make the change or the transfer. Thank you, Mia. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I have a kind of a unique his, uh, relationship with the church in my own history, which has kind of compelled me. Um, I, I, I grew up in Milwaukee. Both my parents were drug addicts, um, struggled a lot in, in my community. I have ADHD. That's why I'm touching stuff. Just let me fiddle. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but I went to a very unique church when I was in Milwaukee. It was an all-black Lutheran church with a white pastor. <laughs> and uh, there's this mural a couple of blocks from the house that I grew up in um, that uh, has all these black civil rights leaders. And uh, the pastor of, our, of that church, is, um, the picture is kind of like in the middle of the mural. And it's kind of ironic to think about it, but uh, his name is Joseph, Joseph Elwanger. Um, he historically was one of the, the only white people um, invited into prominent civil rights discussions. He was one of Dr. King's close advisors and friends. And so, um, you know, that was his history. Um, and, uh, and so I, I come about it honestly, even in my upbringing. And, and uh, I kind of got into the work. I've always been involved in some ways in multicultural work and justice work, but, you know, in my adult years more intentionally. And Lowell and I got connected because we were at a church. I have I've been doing church planning for a lot of my adult years. And so me and Lowell were at a, a, a church together where we, and we've been able to build relationship um, through even some of our own trauma, <laughs> through doing this work together. Our own, uh, you know, uh, pains and experiences have even drawn us closer. Uh, but um, that's what really got me into the work. Um, and our relationship um, has become strong because, you know, Lowell puts his money where his mouth is. And you know that means all the world to me, as a person who does this work. And a lot of people claim to be interested, but when it's time to put you know foot to pavement, um, you see a, you know people kind of <laughs> disappear. Yeah. And so Lowell hasn't been one of those disappears. Well, I appreciate that, Dustin. Um, it's a good question. Um, so for me, uh, I'm coming at the work from a different position than Dustin. Uh, as as you know and mentioned, um, so I'm I'm a 
as Greg says, Greg Thompson, a, a, a person that America deems white. We know that, you know, whiteness is a fiction, right? But but I'm, I'm a white person, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm an Arkansan, born and raised in Little Rock, like I said. And so um, why do I care? Um, I've, I've come to some clarity uh, about that recently and being able to, to answer that question maybe in a more helpful way than I have in the past. Um, so I'll answer it a couple ways. Um, one is that, um, so my oldest, Titus, he's seven now, um, and he was born, gosh, in 16. And when he was almost a year old, we fostered, um, my son is white because my wife's white, right? But uh, we fostered a little black boy who is 10 days younger than my son Titus. So I effectively had biracial twins for about a year. And in that season of my life, I watched the film 13th for the first time and I read The New Jim Crow um, and I saw the statistics um, and I looked at these two babies uh, on the floor in my living room in their diapers and I realized that um, it was probable that their paths in life would diverge um, and that would not really have anything to do with them, right? Um, it was because of uh, unjust systems in our country. And, and I had to really reckon with that um, and ask myself, what am I gonna do with that now that I see that, now that I know that? Um, and I got really unsettled. I was, I was very troubled. Um, and I sought to understand what are what is this this context this world that we're living in and how do we come to this place and and the short of it um one of the books that most helped me is a book called divided by faith by emerson and smith and and just briefly um they and other people we've interviewed on the podcast dr christina edmondson have made it really clear to me that um to to, to simplify it to boil it down um when when you ask white Christians, generally evangelicals specifically, why is there racial inequality? We blame black people. We say it's a black person problem. But when you ask black Christians, they say it's, it's a racist system problem. And the latter is correct. The former is incorrect. Um, and so what I realized was in, in my journey, I was a part of a community that had misunderstood the problem and therefore, with, with, with really good intentions, frequently, we were actually making it worse, not better. That's the conclusion of Divided by Faith, the book. Um, they say, hey, with, with fine intentions, we've, we've perpetuated racial injustice because we've chosen not to see these systems of oppression. And we've just tried honestly to make black people more like us. Come join our thing, come be like me. Uh, and we've called that racial reconciliation. Um, and so, the, the final way that I'll answer the question that has come to me more recently, and we, we expressed in our most recent podcast episode, which will be released in November, is um, I'm, I'm still a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. Um, there's a, a scripture in John where Jesus says some hard things, like he's the bread of life and you got to eat him. And people are like, what is he talking about? And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, do y'all want to go too? Because a bunch of people quit on him. And Peter says to Jesus, where else will we go? That's how I feel about Jesus. So I, I want to follow him. Um, 
and it's become clear to me that to, to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, um, requires me to do justice. Jesus is very clear about that in the scriptures and the gospels, particularly Matthew chapter 23, which is a favorite of Dustin and mine, um, which also alludes to Micah 6, um, in which Micah says, hey, there's really just three things that God wants from you. Um, and those are to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. So like, if we wanna follow Jesus, we have to do justice. And then if we look with, with any sort of honesty at, at our context, the place in which we live, the time and place that, that we are, and we say, I wanna be a person who does justice, um, we again, we have to reckon with these, these unjust systems, these things like the black-white wealth gap, um, the fact that people who look like me have 10 times the wealth on average as people who look like you. And, and so I've been compelled um, as somebody who, who wants to follow Jesus, who wants to do justice, to, to participate, um, albeit in a small way, in this work of reparations. And, and I think, finally, like Dustin said, um, I've, I've become persuaded, and Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, she said, nobody's free until everybody's free, which is a different way of saying, if I, de if I dehumanize you, I'm dehumanizing myself. And so um, reparations is, in my opinion, the only way for any of us to be whole. And that includes me and us. Uh, Pastor Lowe. <laughs> Can we go get back there, those two? Can we take both of those questions at the same time, one after the other? Do you want to ask your first? You, you go first. Uh, I'm Gabby. Um, I'm just curious on your guys' thoughts since you combine both uh, religion and education along with reparations is like, I don't know exactly how to phrase this, but kind of do you think that we're overdue for a third great, great awakening? Because um, with my knowledge and like studying great awakenings, they kind of follow um, progress and like education like on a national scale. And do you think that that's kind of what your work is pushing like greater education like for America and um, regards to like helping overcome that cognitive dis dissonance that you described in the previous podcast between like reparations and white supremacy? I'll take the next question. Um, mine is in relation to the Malcolm X analogy, um, sort of, you can pull the knife out of my back, but then if you try to put a bandaid on it to try to stop the bleeding, it's not going to help. So how do we prevent, um, sort of bandaid reparations where these churches are coming in and giving money as a way to absolve themselves of their guilt, but not actually address the damage they did to these communities? Everybody gets an A. Brilliant questions, guys. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Maybe a few more minutes, but I, I think, yeah. That feels like you. Which one do you want? Well, one of you guys need to go. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to address both, actually. Uh, I, I think the first question is great, because I think that's one of the things that uh, a lot of people don't think about is how awakenings historically have been kind of married with social reform and social movements to do justice. Um, the awakening that we don't actually talk about theologically is the civil rights movement as being an awakening, mm -hmm. right? The civil rights movement is primarily led by churches and pastors. And, and so as a social movement in that regard, 
um, most of those the people that we know historically are Christians. Um, so I think, you know, I think driven through younger generations who have um, uh, a far more of an activist spirit um, are driving that, who say who, who in a lot of ways have be, been de-churched, having dealt with a lot of the baggage and the messiness, um, who are coming to the scriptures and reading the, the prophets, reading Jesus, and saying, you know, what I have seen does not match up with, with what I'm reading. Um, how do we actually live into that um, in real meaningful ways? And I think that's really what drives the progress in those spaces is of, of young people who rise up to say, hey, if I have a faith, I want it to match um, um, my lived experience um, and what I want to see happen in the world, what God communicates that he wants to see happen in the world. And I think with, with Malcolm X, I think we do a lot of Band-Aid things. I think that's one of the questions that we've had to wrestle with in doing what we, what we do. Um, what we are doing here in Northwest Arkansas is, and we communicate this, is in no way to be uh, the solution for broad-scale reparations. We actually do an episode with William Darity, who strongly believes that real reparations has to be done at the federal level. Um, what we are inviting people, churches into, is to take steps to move into that direction so that we hopefully can cause a groundswell of people, um, community by community, that are calling for this and are moving towards this so that eventually we can actually get to real reparations which can open the door for real healing. Mm -hmm. You want to have the last word here? Yeah, I'll just conclude with thank you um, to you, Dr. Banton, uh, to Dustin and uh, Lee and Leah uh, from KUAF, and to you uh, students for, for uh, inviting us uh, into class, and that I'd be happy uh, to continue the conversation with y'all individually, uh, really whenever, wherever. Uh, I enjoy talking about it. So uh, Likewise. Thank you all. And let me, just one second here, let me just say to, please give yourselves a round of applause. Because, you know, these are very difficult conversations to have. And as you see increasingly in this country, it's very difficult to sit down with people who might have different views and opinions from you and to hear hard things. So consider yourself developing that skills that is deeply lacking in this country that you can sit and engage and listen and and be a part of these things that are not very easy but you are doing it and i'm very proud of you guys thank you so much for class today thank you for listening to another riveting episode of undisciplined this episode was hosted by dr Kari banton and my co-host, Nenebi Tony. It was produced by Leah Grant. Undisciplined is a collaboration between African and African American Studies at the University of Arkansas and KUAF. It's available every other Wednesday at KUAF.com or on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the African and African American Studies program and the Undisciplined podcast on our Instagram page at UARK underscore AAST 
or visit KUAF.com to listen to this and other episodes. If you like today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or anywhere you listen to your podcast and rate us.